Hi, I'm Gavin Givanoni, Professor of Neurology at Barts and the London School of Medicine and Dentistry. And I'm going to discuss a very pertinent topic or a question that's often asked by many patients. And uh, the two case studies here were two individuals with MS who asked me independently of each other um, if the fact that they've got secondary progressive multiple sclerosis, or at least labeled with secondary progressive MS, was due to the fact that they had a delayed access uh, to treatment. Uh, the one patient was delayed um, for uh, diagnostic reasons. It took a long time to be diagnosed. Uh, and the second patient uh, was around treatment inertia. In other words, one of her consultant neurologists were looking after her wanted her to have more active uh, disease associated with some disability before starting treatment. And these paradigms are, are quite common. Uh, we have a big issue around delayed access to diagnosis, and some neurologists still want people to be uh, at least have more aggressive or more disabling or a worse prognosis in terms of a required disability before starting treatment. Thankfully, both these issues are being addressed as we modernize MS care and diagnosis. So we are beginning to see diagnostic delays improve and we're beginning to see people getting onto treatment much, much earlier and also more effective treatments much earlier. Anyway, I use the argument based on the 21-year follow-up data of the pivotal original, the very, very first interferon beta-1b, the beta-feron, beta-seron trial. And it was quite clear that those people in the trial who had give, got access to both doses, the low and the high dose, uh, had a 50% higher chance of being alive 21 years later compared to people who had delayed access. And the people who went on to placebo were given treatment after the end of the study between three and five years. And so that delay of accessing even a moderately effective therapy on average, like interferon, you know, had a consequence for them at 21 years. And I want to make the point that you get to EDSS 10 uh, by going through all the intermediate points. So you go through two, four, six, eight, um, uh, before you get to 10, which is death. And the important thing um, about the study, people criticized the study saying, well, the follow-up wasn't 100%. Yes, there were literally a handful, six patients from one center that weren't included in the follow-up. And so the follow-up of this particular study was incredible. They got almost 100% case ascertainment. So you can't say that the figures were skewed by failure to um, uh, find patients with follow-up. The other criticism was, well, these deaths may not be related to MS. And the investigators who did this study went through all the death certificates, and they managed to ascribe uh, between about 78%, almost 80% of the deaths due to MS-related complications, you know, aspiration pneumonia from swallowing problems, septicemia from bladder dysfunction, uh, etc. So we think that the impact that interferon beta had on survival at 21 years is MS-related and not due to the effect of interferon on other things like cancers, for example because it, there is some evidence that uh, interferon beta may be an effective therapy against certain types of cancers. So this is a real finding, in my opinion, and it's a very potent finding that the earlier you get onto the treatment, the better the long-term outcome. 
I suppose the question that everybody asks is, can you go even earlier? And we are trying to go earlier. We have designed a study at our centre uh, at the Royal London Hospital, uh, part of Bart's Health, where we want to get people onto uh, natalizumab. And we're using natalizumab because it's the fastest onset of action. It doesn't change the immune system. In other words, once it washes out, the immune system is still intact. And it's pretty safe, uh, at least in the short term where we get somebody coming in with a clinically isolated syndrome, you know, usually a brainstem or a spinal cord attack. And before we even finish diagnostic workup, we've got an MRI scan that looks like MS. Before we've done the lumbar puncture, evoked potentials, we stick them on uh, uh, natalizumab versus placebo. And then we let the natural diagnostic pathway uh, flow. And then the people allocated to the placebo We'll get, we'll get unblinded at about month two, where, would, where we normally get people onto treatment. There's normally about an eight-week delay um, on average. And we're going to test whether or not that eight weeks makes a difference to the uh, outcome uh, uh, in patients. So in other words, we're trying to nudge the MS community and ourselves into treating MS uh, like we treat stroke. You know, every instead of seconds, minutes, and hours, in MS, it's really days, weeks, and months make a difference. And if we can show that getting on to natalizumab really, really as quickly as possible improves outcome in terms of brain volume, maintaining brain volume, reducing the evolution of the disease, then we may change the paradigm and people will begin to treat MS much more aggressively and particularly upfront uh, and treat the MS brain like we treat the stroke brain. That's the philosophy. <clears throat> I've also included a, uh, a video that I recorded of my talk that I gave at the American Academy meeting, and not the American Academy, the Actrans meeting in 2020, which is on YouTube. So watch that. That goes through all these issues about flipping the pyramid and trying to improve long-term outcomes. And I think the good news is that I've just been invited by the steering committee, the scientific steering committee of Actrans 2022, which has been held in uh, Amsterdam in the Netherlands in October this year. <clears throat> as part of one of the hot topic sessions, and I'll be talking about flipping the pyramid and beyond. And I'm almost certain that the aim of my talk would be about treating to target, but beyond uh, no evident inflammatory disease activity, which is our current target. So in other words, not just focusing on relapses and new MRI activity, but trying to target what I call smoldering MS and then the holistic management, all those lifestyle and other uh, strategies to protect the brain and focus on brain health with the primary objective in terms of ma MS management to protect the end organ, in, in other words, your brain and spinal cord, so that it can be as healthy as possible that you can age normally. And, and I suppose that's the, the new treatment paradigm we're moving towards. And so I, I'd like to just stop and say that the issues raised in this particular newsletter are at the heart of the contemporary management of MS. How do we get MS diagnosed as quickly as possible, people onto treatment as possible, and thinking way beyond just rendering them no evident inflammatory disease activity? So please read it. Um, I put the two papers at the end of the newsletter, the, the, the abstracts that you can go through, and there are links to the full publications uh, online. And uh, leave, a, leave a comment, ask questions. I'll try and address them because I think this is a really important issue. And I also allude to the... Uh, problem we have in the NHS is when people have just got active MS, I'm not talking about highly active or rapid evolving severe MS. These are people with just 
bond or active MS, which is probably about four out of five patients in the beginning of their disease are classified as active disease, only really have access to one class of highly effective therapy as a first-line treatment option. That's the anti-CD20 therapies, either ocrelizumab or ofatumumab. And I make the case that I think this is really ridiculous. You know, we should have the option of offering people the whole gamut of uh, disease-modifying therapies, and we should try and push to have our the labels uh, changed. You know, we, we are in the process of lobbing Merck and the MHRA to get uh, oral cladribine first line, and I think it deserves to be first line based on its safety profile now and the trial results. But why only oral cladribine? Why not natalizumab in JC negative patients? Why not alemtuzumab in people who are prepared to take the risk? And I go even one step further. Why not HSCT? You know, why can't we offer autologous hematopoietic stem cell transplant first line uh, in this country uh, under NHS guidelines? Um, most of us, I could identify a group of people who we think have such bad prognostic profile at baseline that being able to offer them that as an option is reasonable. You know, they don't have to take that option. You know, if we educate, inform, and guide people correctly, you know, they can make the decisions themselves about the risks and the benefits of treatment and whether they are prepared to take on those risks or not. And I'm uh, I'm not an outlier here. I know several of my colleagues who look after people with MS, particularly the older ones who've seen the impact MS can have in the long term. You know, when asked, well, how would you want your MS managed? They often come back and say, I would you know, want my MS managed with alemtuzumab or hematopoietic stem cell transplant. So the real question then is, how can we be offering or managing our patients MS differently to the way we'd want our MS to be managed if we had the disease? And I think that's a fundamental question. You know, we should be pushing uh, to treat people with this disease or at least having the option to treat them uh, the same way we'd want our MS managed. Finally, if you haven't subscribed yet, please do. Um, we're gradually ticking up with subscribers and uh, uh, all, the res all the subscriptions are going to go towards um, supporting the MS Healthy website, which I'm delegating to a professional medical writer and a web web uh, uh, you know web designer to run for me because I just don't have the bandwidth to uh, take the information in these newsletters and curate it into a format that's easily accessible with an index search engine written in a way that's probably better than the way I write. Uh, and make it consistent across uh, topics, uh, you know, for people with MS. We're trying to make a, an MS selfie website that's essentially a self-help self guide uh, online for people with the disease. Don't feel that you have to subscribe. Uh, you know, I'm not, you know, everything on the MS selfie uh, newsletter website is free. It's just that these things don't pay for themselves if they want to get them run properly. And I'd like to make this a uh, self-funding, self-funding uh, <clears throat> resource uh, for the future.